Welcome to episode 5 of Ben and Luke's Excellent Adventures, the podcast where Luke makes me watch a movie that I've never seen, and then we talk about it. So, what today is our movie, Luke? Today our movie was Chunking Express, a film by Wong Kar Wai. He is a uh, filmmaker from Hong Kong. Very, very, very talented, very, very, very good, and now let's see what Ben's opinion is, and he better say he liked it or else he's wrong. I didn't dislike it. You're leaning towards wrong here, Ben. Come on. <laughs> I think I think it was another one where I didn't I didn't feel like I found what the movie was trying to say, and I have a hard time being in, like enthusiastically positive about a movie that doesn't doesn't connect to me in that way. I suppose. You know, I wasn't. I, you know, I wasn't bored any time during the movie. I liked watching it and. Just not, just not going to be on my great films list. I think my wife is going to be so sad. Well, your wife has also watched the movie like three hundred times, so maybe she's picked up on something I haven't. The idea behind the film, in my mind, uh, not to speak for my wife, but not to speak for Diana, but um, in my mind, this film is is a lot about how you know densely packed Hong Kong is and how incredibly concentrated people are in that area and yet they're kind of in their own little stories in their own little worlds and everything kind of slows down whenever you see things go personal you know yeah i could see that i mean i think one of the first things that was pointed out when we were watching this was how the movie starts off with this almost stop motion sort of animation that's very disorienting and jerky and it and it's almost difficult to watch for long term in that sense because you you just have all these quick flashes of what's happening. Mm-hmm. And I think the first comment we heard was, "Oh, is is this the whole movie, or is it going to keep doing this?" <laughs> but I think that kind of sets it up. You know, the the idea that it's being in this giant, confusing city with way too many goddamn people, and the idea that. You know, their their work. Uh, you, you notice that that usually happens when they're having their working life, or when they're just sort of getting lost in the city and mm-hmm. waiting for things to happen in their own tales. Yeah, kind of the the uh, the transitional scenes. It's almost like here, this guy's a cop. Remember, now let's get back to the stuff that's actually important to him. <laughs> yeah. So the movie the movie was divided into two stories. That are only very loosely connected, and that's maybe that's one of the other things that made me have a hard time connecting to the film as a whole was that there were it was really two movies. Yeah, it's two stories within one movie. I still would say that they are, in a sense, the same film, if only because of the fact that, like I said, it's it's dealing with that idea of loneliness within this incredibly concentrated area, and so I think they. In my mind, they had to have both stories there to really drive that point home, you know? Mm-hmm. Because both stories really do kind of tell that same story. You know, it's very specific people playing out this life of loneliness when they're constantly surrounded by people to such a degree that they almost can't breathe. Yeah. Although that does play into some amusing coincidences where even in this incredibly populated city, they're still able to run into each other. <laughs> I think I found that, I don't know if it's just because I, you know, saw it, I guess, 45 minutes, like, more recently than the other, the first half, but I feel like the second half really stuck with me more than the first half. 
And I think that's a pretty common reaction. That's most of the people I know who've watched this movie. The second half is, is the more memorable out of the two. And there are a few reasons for that. I think, I think the first reason is probably what you mentioned. Yeah. It's the second one. It's the one you've most recently seen when you're talking about the film. So that kind of sticks in your head, which I, you know, is just sort of an unfortunate fact. Um, but I think there's some other elements too in that the second half does feature a more famous actor in Tony Leung, uh, Tony Lang Leung, uh, which obviously you would not connect with, but that is something that a lot of people would be taking away from it. I did realize that I had heard of the actress before, though, because I'd heard her music before, and I, I didn't realize until maybe later um, when we were sat through the credits who she was and um, that I had heard of her before. I did not expect that, actually. You've heard of Fei Wong. Uh-huh. Well, maybe this time you'll actually remember people's names then this time, Ben. <laughs> nope. So let's start talking about that first one. Just, you know, kind of jog your memory a little bit. Um, you know, as as you'll remember, that was the story where it was essentially a lovelorn cop who had just uh, broken up with his girlfriend and was trying to collect pineapple cans. Or she, she broke up with him, didn't wasn't it? Yeah, I was trying to let him off easy, but, you know, go ahead and drive that knife into the poor guy. <laughs> you can use the knife to open up his cans of pineapple. Maybe that was the other, his um, eccentricities for being lovelorn made it harder to uh, like and connect with him as a character, I think. He was pretty much a sad sack. If he if he buys a tin of pineapple with an expiration date of the 1st of May every day, and then at the end he'll either be rejoined by his love or it will have expired forever. Kind of more interested in the um, the the drug smuggling operation that we that we get to see than the uh, the romance story. Yeah, the drug smuggling was kind of an interesting touch up with it, just because the second story doesn't have any of that type of thing. You know, the second story really is just that love story between the the two main characters, whereas with that first story, you have a whole extra element that's thrown in there. And that's actually something that kind of amuses me about that first story is um, this this film takes a lot of time diverting your expectations, especially if you're an American viewer. You know, as we're used to American romantic romantic comedies where the guy acts, does all this forward behavior and then gets the girl to go out with him. And, oh, he, we're supposed to think he's so cute when really his behavior in real life would be kind of creepy. <laughs> And in this one, the guy does have some forward behavior where he you know, insists on sitting next to this woman and continuing to talk to her when she's made it clear that she wants nothing to do with him. But instead of rewarding him, he just unwittingly aids and abets a drunk criminal while eating bad food. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> – he gets nothing really beneficial out of this. That's not that's not the creepiest thing he did. I thought the, the phone calls where he would call and talk to his ex-girlfriend's parents were, were kind of weirder. Oh, he did lots of creepy stuff. But uh, so sitting yeah. sitting down trying to convince a um, a sad looking woman that she maybe wants some company is maybe less creepy than that one. That other part, I don't know. Some elements of that felt kind of pickup artist to me. If it had gone on longer before she seemed to acquiesce, I think it would have been really creepy. But 
she then proceeds to spend the, the night drinking with him, so... Did he really help her out in her drug smuggling, or just give her something to do for an evening? Yeah, you know. Cleaned her shoes up. He made it so that, uh, you know, she couldn't be identified by those those shoes that had been worn all over town. Nah, I don't know, I'm making things up. <laughs> but still, I mean, he, he, you know, his behavior wasn't really rewarded in that thing at all. It was... Until he learned to pick himself up and actually get over his own problems, he had nothing going for him in the whole film, despite yeah. his behavior. Whereas American romantic comedies, you know, the stereoty- of the stereotypical variety, would have been taking pity on him and going, "Oh, look at him! He's such a great guy. We got to reward him." <laughs> in every '80s movie. But I'm a nice guy. Yeah, I almost wonder if some of that might be because of the unrealistic expectations set up by 1980s films. But that's a whole other podcast, I think. Like maybe one when we get to 16 Candles. Is that even on the list? It would actually be Pretty in Pink that would be a better example, but anyways. (laughs) But yeah, like I said, I have uh, less of a recollection of the first half of the movie and uh, maybe not so much to say about it. You know, one thing I will say about it with that drug operation, all I could think the whole time we were watching those guys, you know, sewing things into t- into all kinds of different sections of the clothing, putting things into the soles of the shoes. All I could think was this is why the criminals are always going to win because those guys are goddamn industrious. <laughs> I mean, they learn a trade just to do this, you know? <laughs> Apparently just to run off with the drugs. Yeah, sometimes it doesn't always work out, but, you know, she got to shoot a bitch, so. (laughs) While he was feeding his cats. So let's talk about that second part, since I can tell you are just absolutely chomping at the bit. (laughs) Speaking of creepy behavior, this this, uh, Faye Wong's character, apparently the, the character's name is Faye as well. You know my favorite thing about that second half? Hmm. The fact that they keep referring to the mamas and the papas as loud music. <laughs> You're so old, Tony Long. But yeah, at first I thought uh, she was going to be, you know, kind of kind of quirky like Amelie. Uh, you know, maybe this turned out to be more of the the Western expectation of a of a quirky movie, a quirky romance movie, and maybe it it really was, and it's just more obviously creepy when you switch the roles around, but she was weird. She was very weird. And it doesn't necessarily end up the way you think it's going to. You know, they, they do end it on a much more ambiguous tone. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing about it is that the focus of it in the end, I don't think is really on the love story between those two characters. I think it's on the two characters figuring out who they really want to be from here going forward. Yeah. You know, by the time we get to the ending of it, where they finally meet up again, it almost doesn't matter whether they end up, you know, being in a couple and being in a relationship, getting married, having kids, retiring, getting old, dying together, whatever. None of that really matters because the story was really more about him figuring out that he just wants to run the snack shop, snack shop so that he can get as much chef salad as he wants and her <laughs> deciding to go off and travel the world, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it didn't seem like... When she was doing all these things, it wasn't with the expectation that she would definitely get a romantic uh, relationship out of it. She was just super weird and getting into his business. 
I'm so I'm trying to figure out if she flooded his apartment on accident and left to get something to try to fix or um, to, to clean up the the flooding, and then he happened to come home or what, or if this was her attempt to clean the floor got gone wrong. Just that whole scene where he comes home and his his apartment is flooded. Yeah, she definitely screwed something up, whether she intended to or not. And I think that's another that whole story with her breaking into the apartment is another example of the film kind of playing with our expectations a little bit. Um, with the first one, you know, like we said, it's it's sort of like I was talking about. It's a little sad and creepy when the guy is trying so hard to pick up the woman, and then in this one, it ends up we end up thinking it's kind of quirky and cute when she's literally stalking and breaking into his place and causing property damage, getting rid of his things, all kinds of stuff. And the film just kind of plays on our expectations to these. Yeah. I mean, I didn't like at the beginning, I thought it was going to be played as quirky and cute, but it rapidly became not so. It actually made me reevaluate how I felt about um, the Amelie character and and the movie Amelie. That's interesting, actually, that it's making you revise your expectations on a totally different film from a totally different continent. <laughs> well, it's the same. It was the same thing where you know she breaks into somebody else's apartment and makes some changes in an attempt to like cheer him up or introduce some randomness into his life, you know. And we are expected to see her as quirky and as cute and helpful, where that's not really you know, socially acceptable behavior or something that you really want people to be going around doing. And I think it's kind of an interesting comment on gender and the way we perceive things too, in the sense that we're more willing to forgive that type of thing with a woman than we are with a man. Not to get too, but I'm a nice guy. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's the the double-edged sword of of not assigning as much agency to women. So they seem less threatening, but also less of an agent. You know, going back to the first film a little bit here, um, something else that I find interesting with that is the idea of him cleaning the woman's shoes with his tie. And it's so unsanitary, but then there's that shot of him leaving the hotel room and you see those pristine white shoes in focus. And he's completely and totally ignored by that shot. The whole thing is basically him remembering, you know, you, you can get the sense that he's going to remember this idealized version of her that's just represented by these shoes, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, to me, it's kind of symbolic of the fact that we don't treat women as real as real people a lot of times in these stories. We treat them as symbols or as ideas. Yeah, or objects in general. I mean, the whole idea of putting a woman up on a pedestal is essentially idealizing to the, to the point of them not having any agency. Yeah, because it did never really... Well, actually, did did May show up in the first movie? You mean Faye? May, no, the, the ex-girlfriend. I don't remember the ex-girlfriend showing up in the first portion, um, but I know Faye did. I think the most we see of May is just hearing her phone, her uh, him talking to her parents on the phone. Yeah, because, yeah, I can see, like, um, you know, in the first story, the guy has idealized her so much and made such a big deal about it that he's, you know, put a, put a real damper on his own life because of that idealization. And then we never we never see her or hear, like, about why she broke up with him a whole lot. You know, we don't hear a whole lot about that. We just hear his side of the story, really. 
It was really funny to me, though, when he starts talking about how May always told him he was a cool guy, because I don't <laughs> think anyone would tell that guy that he's cool. <laughs> At least he made detective and wasn't just a beat cop. That makes him cool, right? Only in the 1940s. <laughs> oh, I wasn't clear on what his work schedule was, because he seemed to do whatever he wanted to whenever he wanted to. You know, he just, he gets his uh, messages on his pager. <laughs> two two things that dated this movie, the pagers and the cigarettes. <laughs> what is it with every movie I have on this list having smoking in it? I never realized this was a thing. It's also in Hong Kong. I don't know if they have, um, I know like in China, smoking is still a big thing. I don't know if the, if the, if Hong Kong has made the same change that like Western countries have. Yeah, that's a good point, too. I mean, this is a 20-year-old movie as well, though. So a few interesting things, though, with the actual filmmaking. Um, we talked a little bit about the the whole stop-motion jerkiness that they do a couple of times when there's either people waiting for things or when they're doing their work, you know, doing their routines. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually like a lot of the sort of distinction that they do between pacing of different sequences. I don't know if you noticed the differences between the in the first section between the blonde woman's sequences and the cop's sequences where he's talking about his pineapple and calling his ex-girlfriend. And it's these very slow, leisurely sequences where he's, you know, lying about, taking his time, clinging to the moment. Um, the only time he's fast-paced is really when he's doing his job. Um Whereas she's always rushing and there's quick cuts, there's frenetic movement. She's, you know, going places and doing things. And it's not necessarily having to be in that stop motion style, but it's it's stuff that's important to her in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I almost wonder if that's something, if, if there's more to say on the entire agency question that we've been talking about, considering that she seems to be showing a lot more agency than he is. She's caring a lot more about her actions than he does yeah because as much as um we might by default assign agency to that police officer he didn't he didn't really have a lot of agency where he had placed himself in this position where he was you know pining after his ex-girlfriend or um you know kind of trapped himself into that non-relationship yeah he doesn't really seem to be pushing himself or earning anything really. I mean, it feels like the only thing he really earns throughout that whole thing is vomiting up pineapple. <laughs> Cause man, he works for that. He works that. Yeah. When I realized he wasn't just buying the pineapple and eating it, he was saving it all and eating it all at once. That was, yeah, probably not a good idea guy. Yeah, I do love that you and uh, you and Wendy both were just horrified by him eating all of it at once like that. <laughs> he just really hated his esophagus, apparently. I like how orderly and concerned the convenience store guy was about selling him pineapple that was about to expire. You know, and that's actually very accurate, though. I've heard uh, that that is a thing that, that stores will do if you try to buy something that's almost expired or, or stuff that's getting old. There are some grocery stores that will just get very, very upset that you're going to get something that might be bad. <laughs> I think I'd said at the time too, like it's pineapple's a weird thing to be concerned about. Like it's almost it's almost self-preserving because it's so acidic. Yeah, there's not much that can survive in that. 
That said, I did have a bottle of window cleaner once that grew fungus inside of it. That was pretty disturbing <laughs> to watch. So as, uh, as unremarkable as I had initially claimed the first story to be, we did uh, manage to come back to it quite a bit here. I had some things I wanted to say, and I wasn't letting you stop me, damn it. <laughs> something else that I enjoy that ties them together, too, is, uh, and I think this was actually something that Wendy pointed out, your, your girlfriend, who, uh, when we were watching it, at the very end of the film, you know, the end of the second sequence, when she gives him that letter, he tries to act all cool and throw it, throws it away, and then he goes and grabs it and dries it all out, and he takes care to try and be able to read it again after it gets ruined in the rain. And it's just like that first schmuck with his pager, you know? <laughs> He's going, oh, I'm just going to leave my pager here. I'm too cool for this. And then all of a sudden it beeps and he's running back to it, freaking out. <laughs> it's like neither of them is quite as broken of their habits as they like to pretend. Yeah. I liked Faye's line as well when she did come back and he uh, asked if she'll like send him a postcard or something. And she said, that, why would I bother? You're not going to read it anyway. Just like the letter he got from his um, stewardess girlfriend in the beginning that he never picked up or read or anything. Yeah, that was pretty much fantastic, calling him out like that. He is definitely not going to get to land any planes on her butt anytime soon. <laughs> that was kind of a weird, a weird scene. Is that supposed to be metaphorical or just... I'm pretty sure that I, I know exactly what that plane was supposed to symbolize. <laughs> as soon as the plane touches her, she gets all covered in wet, sticky fluid. I mean, it's not subtle. Wait, did that actually happen? I don't remember that. She's, I think she spilled something on herself. <laughs> Another sequence that I really like in that second story, um, just visually is the scene where the where we kind of follow the two of them while he's carrying the heavy basket for her and she's uh, playing with his hat and everything. Mm-hmm. It's just, there's this sort of spy quality to it where you feel like pit- fellow pedestrians who are just kind of listening in, you know, the, the camera follows them down these very tight alleyways in the market and it's not really paying attention to getting them in these, cl- in these really attractive film style shots. Mm-hmm. I think that's another thing that I like about this film is just it goes to great effect with showing just how tight this city is and how small the spaces are and how packed in. And apparently all that time where he's carrying the basket, she would have been dragging it through all these people. So that seems like even more of a hassle. Yeah, I can't imagine how much of a pain in the butt that would be. Like they don't they don't have anything with wheels on it she can use. But it was uh, was 20 years ago. They may not have had that technology. Another thing that's kind of interesting about it with tying the two stories together is that um, most of the action for the two of them, lighting is pretty, pretty crucial to it. You know, the first story, the first half of the film, mostly takes place at night, whereas the second one mostly takes place during the day. Mm-hmm. Which also kind of... I wonder if that might play into a little bit of the idea of one cop being a detective and the other cop being more of a beat cop, you know, having these different working schedules and having different focuses. Yeah. I hadn't really noticed that, but yeah, that's first guy didn't, it wasn't daytime for the first guy until like the end of his 
end of his story. So maybe what's going to happen after that is, you know, it, it becomes daytime and he realizes that he's been so lovesick that he's gotten de- demoted. And then he becomes a beat cop and starts falling in love with a completely different woman. <laughs> it's like poetry, Ben. It rhymes. So one thing I did end up looking up um, was why the movie was called Chunking Express when there was no there's no train in the movie, as I asked you. And apparently it is a reference to the Chunking Mansions, which is a building where the first part of the movie is set. And then the, the food stall where Faye works is called Midnight Express. So it was just smashing them together. That's actually kind of cool. So it kind of ties the stories together again there with, you know, the setting of one and then the setting of the other. Well, that's about uh, everything that I can remember about the movie. Did you have anything else you wanted to make sure that I, that we talked about or that, that I knew about it now? I think the last thing I would want to bring up is um, one of the things I researched, I ended up finding out this film took about two months for them to complete it. It was something that he did in a br- as a break from another film. <laughs> and having tried to do things in two months before, I can definitely say this is, this is probably the best two-month production film I've ever seen. <laughs> Just like the when uh, author Brandon Sanderson writes a novella on a plane trip, an especially a long plane trip, uh, or as a break between uh, writing chapters of his 1,000-page epic fantasy book, <laughs> I had a break from writing my book, so I wrote a book. <laughs> Occasionally, people accuse uh, him of not being a real person and actually being a cabal of other writers who are working <laughs> together. He's just trying to put everyone else to shame, that's all. It's, he's, <laughs> it's his way of making fun of Wheel of Time fans. <laughs> a Game of Thrones fans is what you should have said. That would have been much funnier because this guy has not put out a book in so many years. Meanwhile, uh, Sanderson writes a blog post every year detailing what he worked on, when he worked on it, what he's going to work on for the next year, and when he expects like his next four <laughs> books to come out. <laughs> oh my gosh, has he had an embolism yet? I mean, <laughs> he has said that also that he doesn't doesn't actually write that fast, or like it's not that strenuous for him. He just does it all the time. Does he have like an IV of caffeine or something? Oh, he's he's morbid. He can't have caffeine. Oh my gosh. I don't know. That that, that person's a robot. <laughs> All right. Well, that's about it for me with Chunking Express. Thank you very much for watching it, though, Ben. I'm, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Yeah, it was fun. Um, all right. So what's the, what's the next movie that you're going to subject me to enjoying, which is apparently the trend? The next film that I'm going to subject you to enjoying is a metaphor for our friendship, Ben. Uh-oh. It's called Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. It is a classic Western starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford. And uh, you and I can then debate on which one of us is which character in the movie. <laughs> but thank you very much, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you in a few weeks here or thank in a you. few minutes because technology is weird. <laughs>